It's time for another edition of Dome and Domer, the only podcast for Notre Dame fans by Notre Dame fans. If you're looking for cogent analysis and unbiased opinions backed by careful reporting, you've come to the wrong place. For the next 20 minutes or so, you'll get a fan's perspective on the Fighting Irish without all the normal spin from the so-called professional analysts. It's Dome and Domer. Now, here are your hosts, Mike Brammer and Ed Jordanic. Hello, Irish fans, and welcome to another edition of Dome and Domer. My name is Mike Brammer. Joining me tonight, Ed Jordanic. Also joining us from ndnation.com, I'm Mike Coffey. Coffey, I'll start with you. First question, let's load it up right away. Um, I saw an article the other day that kind of commented that Notre Dame really needs to win this game at Ohio State. It, it's the game that would put them on the map legitimately. This is kind of it. You lose this game. You lose a lot of luster. You win the rest of your games, even the home game with Clemson, which I don't know, Clemson's Clemson. But the the article basically talked about how it would be such a defining moment for Notre Dame to win at Ohio State. Do you agree with that or disagree? To an extent, I agree. Uh, I think it would create a lot of short-term gain, if nothing else. I mean, number one, we all want to be Ohio State because we all hate Ohio State. So not as much as Michigan, but, you know, they're, they're in there. The thing is, Notre Dame beats Ohio State. If Ohio State goes on to like lose two more games over the course of the year for whatever reason, all of a sudden they're like a nine and three team, and people are looking back saying, "Well, is that really a big a deal that they won?" If if Notre Dame has to lose a game next year, I don't necessarily mind it being Ohio State because they're expected to lose. I mean, I want to say Ohio State right now is like a two touchdown favorite or something. I think if Notre Dame goes in, loses that game, but plays well. I think that'll get just as much benefit as they would out of actually winning it. The, the only result we can't have is getting blown out by three or four scores. That's that can't happen. We need to do better than that. Of course, I'd like to win that game. But if if you put a gun in my head and say you have to pick one game for Notre Dame to, to lose next year, that would be the one I would pick, because by the time you get to Clemson and Southern Cal, you're near the end of the season, and we all know late season losses hurt a lot more than early season losses. If something's going to keep, if, I, I would hate for Notre Dame to go undefeated into the uh, into the Coliseum, lose on a bad officials call, a la so many other times that has happened before. Well, now all of a sudden uh, they're, they're not going to the playoff because they had this late loss. So if if I have to choose one, Ohio State's one I'm choosing. Yeah. I hear you. Ed, um, before you answer that question, I want to pose this question to you as well. So follow up with the answer to this. And this is a trick question, so be careful. So so if Brian Kelly were coaching the second half of the Oklahoma State game, forget about the first half. Let's just pretend that the first half happened, happened the way that it did. If Brian Kelly were coaching the second half of that game, does Notre Dame win? Uh, yeah, I think they probably do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, <clears throat> I mean, I agree with just about everything Mike said um, about the Ohio State game, but I mean, I, you know, listen, I mean, you can't, uh, you can't objectively sort of just sort of 
you know, um, flip off, you know, a couple decades of head coaching experience. Um, you know, there were certainly uh, moments that uh, Brian Kelly sort of made us all shake our heads. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is, you know, he kept and held a lot of leads. Uh, he beat a lot of teams that he should have. Um, he was, he's a very successful head football coach. And when I was watching that, you know, Oklahoma State game, I mean, there were a couple of times where, you know, Marcus Freeman really looked like he didn't know what he should be doing at that moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was uncomfortable, um, at least, you know, in, in, with his body language. And that's OK. I mean, it was the first time he'd ever sort of been the guy that everybody was looking at you know, uh, on the, uh, for, le for leadership, it was a very different role for him. And I think that he will adapt quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, experience does help. Um, and, uh, um, so yeah, but I don't think, you know, listen, I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, that Oklahoma state game was a, you know, was kind of an exhibition game. I mean, you could say, you know, Brian Kelly, if he coached the second half, Notre Dame would have won, but I think, you know, I think more importantly, uh, if Kyron William plays, Notre Dame would have won, no matter who was I agree with coaching, you there. coaching I that day, right? 100%. So, I mean, you know, Tommy Reese could have been the head coach and, and you know, they would have won if Kyron Williams was on the field. So, for, and not even, you know, we're not even talking about Kyle Hamilton. So, um, uh, yeah, but I mean, I, I think that, I think that my coffee's right. Uh, you know, this Ohio State game, uh, what you don't want is sort of the, sort of the narrative that, you know, Notre Dame gets blown out in big games by sort of those top echelon guys. And those top echelon guys really consist of Alabama, Georgia, and, uh, and Ohio State. Um, this is this is the only one that Notre Dame of that kind of exalted trio. Um, I guess you could throw Clemson, of course, Clemson in there, of course, but um, we're sort of excluding them now just to see sort of how they bounce back after a rough year uh, by their standards. Um, but I just I just want Notre Dame to play well. I want them to look organized. I want to see the offensive line, you know, push Ohio State around a little bit. But I'm really sort of, frankly, uh, kind of, uh, you know, I mean, Marcus Freeman's kind of getting set up for a for a fall a little bit. I mean, you know, I just saw the, you know, I mean, Notre Dame is basically in the top five of just about every sports writer's ballot in the country. I mean, there's a there's a there's probably about I mean, they, I just saw the list about a hundred of them. And there's probably like 10 or 15 that have them between six and 10, but nobody has them below 10. And I just think that's interesting for a first time rookie head coach uh, with a quarterback who's played a handful of downs and, um, you know, a mass unit at wide receiver. Um, so, you know, I mean, great. Uh, I think the expectations are pretty high, but that those, those types of things, th those are usually formulas for, you know, um, um, seasons that aren't sort of playoff caliber seasons. Um, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, um, but those, those things are sort of tough to overcome over the course of 12 games. Um, one yeah, of those things yeah, is going to bite you. Yeah. And not just bite you against Ohio State or Clemson, but bite you against BYU or North Carolina or Southern right. Cal or something like that. Right. Yeah, because you're going to have to get through the entire season coaching around those holes. And how effectively can you do that when you're a rookie coach? I mean, I think it's it's going to be great because I I look at the end of the day, you can almost point some of this on Tommy Reese as well. You know, how how effective is he going to come up with a game plan from the offensive 
side of the ball to kind of plug these gaps. Um, r- real quick, coffee, just because I'm kind of curious, and maybe it's just me, but I'm I don't think it is. But um, are you surprised by the uptick in recruiting from Marcus Freeman as opposed to Brian Kelly? I'm not I mean, there's surprised. a lot of depth being added to this football team that we did not see under Brian Kelly. And I just think the number of four star guys we're signing is indicative of that. Absolutely. It, it, it doesn't surprise me in that Marcus Freeman has said from the get go that recruiting is the lifeblood of a program, and it's something he is going to put a lot of effort into. And I think we're seeing those kind of results. Where I get frustrated, though, is we finally have a head coach who focuses on recruiting, wants to be part of it, is getting with these players and making a strong connection with them. And now NIL stuff is going to is is basically falling out of the sky and hitting us in the head. I think there's rumors that Keon Keeley is going to decommit and go to Alabama. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind he's been offered some kind of package. Um I realize the if you ain't cheating, you ain't trying is the mantra down there. But I think part of what uh, and the, the whole NIL thing, while I agree with it, I think it's really given license to the schools who have really been cheating all along to really start doing it blatantly and just start throwing ungodly sums of money at some of these kids. And uh, so to have a coach that realizes the importance of recruiting and is willing to put the effort in and started out with. These first two classes, absolutely fantastic. It's frustrating that NIL might derail that, but I am happy to see the the myth of Notre Dame can't recruit anymore finally be put to bed uh, because we have a head coach right now who's disproving it every day. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Look, the NIL thing, we could probably do the entire show just on that alone. <laughs> but um. I do think it's going to change. They're going to have to do something. They they can't keep going with this. I personally, my gut instinct is there's going to be a players union. Believe it or not, I I personally think that's going to happen. I I think college football players are going to form that because then what you're going to be able to do is start to dictate some of the feelings, and, and maybe they do it based on some sort of classification of five star, four star, three star. These guys get paid X, Y, and Z. And and that's the way that it is. I don't know. Something's got to give, though, because you can't just keep doing this. It, it's real evident that, as you suggest, coffee, that's going on. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Texas A&M is a pure example of that. And, you know, Jimbo Fisher and Saban don't get into conversations like that in the middle of the summer. <laughs> like, something's going True. on. So, anyways, yep. uh, regardless, that's going to shake out. Um but I don't want to divert too much from the, the preseason here. Uh, Ed, do you, um, I mean, it, obviously. Yeah, does anybody I got, know sort of what the status is? I mean, I, we know that the, the NCA is a paper tiger and has been for a long, long time. But, but my understanding is they were taking some steps to sort of issue some. No, some they, they punted it for an entire year. They're not doing anything for no. another year. Yeah. I mean, that's what I heard. I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, but. They've kind of basically said, all right, we're going to let another year go by, and then we're going to figure it out. That's that's what I heard. Well, Mike, no, I, right. I heard the I mean, same the, thing you did. You know, the linchpins of the class, on the, you know, the 23 class on the defensive side of the ball are Keeley and Bowen. Of course, they're the two 
I think most highly rated guys and you know they're the ones that are being pursued most aggressively now there's a couple ways to look at this I mean you know if you want to play big boy football and compete with Ohio State and Alabama and Georgia and Clemson then you're going to get into these battles and yeah it's possible that you know we're playing with with one hand tied behind our back when it comes to you know the bag of money that that we're able to offer um but you know it's it's a test of you know the abilities of of marcus freeman and and uh al washington and uh al golden well, probably swarbrook um, right swarbrook probably more than any of them because they're gonna have well, to agree to how they go after these football guys. players come to a school because of the athletic director no no no, no. but i mean like in terms of how far do you go to make up look i mean don't I, I mean i'm just guessing here but let's just call it what it is so alabama's going to offer him a five-star recruit a package that's backed up by some pretty wealthy alumni that are sure. willing to come in on this is notre dame going to do the same thing to counter or are they going to say no we're going to stay true to you know the, i mean the, it doesn't sound like it it sounds like they're following the the letter and the spirit of sort of the ruling and yeah they're, exactly they're only going to right they're going to have these players clubs they're going to have these irish you know all that kind of stuff and it's going to be a genuine sort of monetary sort of compensation for use of their players name image and likeness it's not going to be you know cut cutting one commercial for a car dealer and getting you know twenty five thousand dollars a week while you're on campus i mean right. it's just not gonna right. you know that's just not the way it's going to work in notre dame um but so you know i don't know i mean i think part of the recruiting battles are um you know there are plenty of really you know there are plenty of top 100 football players um in the country um whose parents have resources and capacity you know where money perhaps isn't the most you know isn't life-changing like it is for a number of players right and their families um so you know you got to do your homework you know i don't know what the situation is with keely and bowen i don't know how much of a difference you know two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year while they're at notre dame matters versus 75 or 50 or 80 or you know whatever um but i think those are the things that you're going to encounter when you're going to compete for these top 100 players and i'm sure marcus freeman has his eyes wide open about that i'm sure james laurinaitis has his eyes wide open about that i'm sure al washington has his eyes wide, wide open about that i mean they've literally been you know on ohio state's campus with urban meyer or with you know ryan day in the last five years they know all about uh playing um playing for keeps on the recruiting trail so um i don't you're we very well may lose may lose one or both of those guys but um but i think the bigger story is um we competed and went after them in the first place and at least for a while convinced them that notre dame uh was a, a viable option for them that's progress. <laughs> yeah, I, I would agree. With you. No, I agree. Yes, yeah, yeah, definitely. definitely. It's a great point. It's a great point. And back to Coffee's point, um, Freeman made this de facto statement from day one uh, that he was going to go after guys. Uh, uh, it sounds like Kelly didn't aggressively go after these guys because he felt like they were out of our league. And um, and and Freeman has a different take on that, which is great. I mean, it's it's showing up obviously. I mean, I man, I can't remember the last time we landed this many four-star recruits. I mean, it's 
talk about some depth. I mean, just in one recruiting class alone in 2023, that's eye-opening. Um, Coffee, so do you, just out of curiosity, are you, uh, I mean, what is, what is your overall assessment of Buckner and what do you think is going to happen if you had to put your finger on it for Ohio State? Um, I think making your first collegiate start in the horseshoe is a very difficult proposition for anybody. Um, I think he's going to play decently well. I'd, if he had a couple more wide out targets that could stretch the field, I'd feel a little bit better about it. But I think the offensive line is going to play better. And I think between the, between the offensive line playing better and his mobility, I think the offense is going to be much more consistent and much more able to score than, I mean, look, what, what 35 order points in the bowl game. I mean, when's the last time we had a bowl game where we scored that many points? I mean, that's, yeah. And, and that was with a relatively slow, immobile quarterback. So you bring in a guy like a kid like Buckner who can move with the ball and really keep linebackers honest and so that they're not going to be able to pin their ears back and go after the quarterback. They have to be very conscious of what he can do. And I think this is going to be a a, a good thing uh, for the team this year. Ed, do you think that... I think what's so, interesting... Sorry, Mike, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you really quick. Do you think that Notre Dame is going to put a package together to kind of protect Buckner a little bit? Or do you think they're just going to go balls out and if Buckner doesn't get it in, Pine's coming in. Well, I certainly know what I hope happens, and that is, um, you know, like you guys alluded to, I mean, you're playing Ohio State, <laughs> so leave it all out there. I mean, wh- why would you protect him um, at all? Um, I understand it's a long season, but you've got to, you know, you've got you've to have the full playbook at your disposal to beat a team like Ohio State. I do think it's interesting that their defensive coordinator – um, you know, came from Oklahoma State. So basically this guy has faced Tommy Reese two consecutive games. Um, the last, uh, you know, the last game he coached uh, was in the bowl game against us. And now he's going to be the, the defensive coordinator on the sidelines for Ohio State. What I'm hoping is, is that anytime a, a defensive coordinator sort of brings in a new system, um, brings in some new terminology, brings in, you know, there's got to be a, an adjustment period. And I hope that, you know, that maybe Ohio State is back on their heels a little bit and thinking a little bit too much um, and not sort of completely immersed in sort of what he's trying to do. And so that we catch them, you know, maybe where as by midseason, they're a little bit more comfortable in the new scheme. Um, but we're sort of the guinea pig and hopefully we're able to take advantage of that. Um, you know, on the other hand, obviously, you know, our offense, um, is, uh, you know, we had changes, of course, at receiver and, and offensive line, but it's, you know, it's Tommy's show for the most part. And um, everybody's, you know, had a couple of years um, sort of in the system. So, so I don't know. I mean, I'm looking for like little silver linings or trying to grasp on things that sort of may help us out. But um, obviously we didn't have any problem with an immobile quarterback in the first half against that defensive coordinator. And Oklahoma State's defense had a pretty damn good reputation coming into that game. Now, of course, it's a Big 12 defense, which you got to take with a grain of salt. But, um, you know, Ryan Day saw something that made him go out and get this guy. Uh, I just think that'll be an interesting chess match since uh, he and Reese faced off, you know, less than a year ago. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, I, personally, my gut instinct is I think what's going to happen is uh, Reese is going to have 20 calls, 20 plays that are scripted that we're running no matter what. So, I mean, some of that will differ based on the down and situation, right? So you get in a second and one, then you're going to switch it up and you're going to call one of three plays. But my, my gut instinct is it's going to be very scripted for those first 20 plays. And it'll be a combination of uh, Buckner, you know, spreading the field. You know, he's going to basically do do what he does to take advantage of the athleticism that he's got. And, and you know, that, that'll be the roll of the dice. I mean, we're going to have to win that way. Um, he's not going to have a deep threat, like you say, coffee. So, well, I mean, other than Lindsay, I mean, he, I think he's got elite speed. I think there's an argument for that. Um, but whether or not he separates himself, you know, um, I, I would imagine, I would hope that there was a lot of time spent on film study of what Oklahoma state did in the second half to Lindsay, as well as the other guys, because they basically muscled them. Um, they, they, they refused. And in my mind, I thought got away with a lot if you ask me, but anyways, um, give credit to the coaching staff, Oklahoma state, because they, they pretty much muscled them through the second half and wouldn't let them get off on any kind of routes. So, um, but you know, the other thing I think will be interesting coffee is there's an argument to me made that Reese will have freer reigns, you know, to a certain extent, at least perception wise, you know, I think we all feel like you had a head coach and Brian Kelly, who was calling the plays a couple of years ago and then turned it over to Reese. Freeman is not that kind of guy. I mean, if I think the last thing in the world we're going to see is Freeman overriding Reese on some sort of offensive play call. So this is really Tommy's chance to shine here. And I think that, you know, we're going to see a lot and we're going to know a lot after the Ohio State game. No, absolutely. I, and there's, you keep reading articles about how strongly Reese is respected, uh, not only in college football, but in the NFL too. And you, you know, that's got to be coming from somewhere. I mean, I, I suppose there's a, uh, there's a logic that if enough people say it, it must be true. And it's hard to be a coordinator on the same side of the ball as your head coach. So I think on the one hand, you're going to see Tommy Reese being a lot freer because, as you said, Freeman's not he doesn't have the offensive experience. He's not going to override him. I wonder uh, how Al Golden and Freeman get. I mean, Al Golden's an experienced coach. And he's also a former head coach, so I think he's hopefully can bring some some zhuzh into Marcus Freeman's uh, ability to look at the head, look, look, to get some perspective that Marcus Freeman can benefit from being a head coach, like trying to help him in situations. But you never know with the coordinator that's on the same side of the ball. It's, it's kind of like Lou Holtz's offensive coordinators. I mean, you think back, did any of them really jump out at you? No. The defensive coordinators, on the other hand, you had like a uh, Foch you, you, you had guys who uh, really got the job done because they weren't really going to get overridden by a head coach who didn't have experience on that side of the ball. Yeah, no, I think there's some truth to that. Well, the, the hope is that with Freeman's, military background he understands and respects the chain of command so i i, I kind of think 
positively <laughs> in that his, regard that he will kind of background. Huh? What's well, his dad, military? Well, his dad wasn't his dad in the military. Oh, his dad, yeah, his dad was in the Air Force, but I'm not. I'm not quite sure that. Well, I think if you're if your dad's in the military, you're in the military. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess so. Um, I mean, I think that I think what's interesting about Marcus Freeman, though, is, yeah, he knows the buck stops with him. But by all accounts, he's incredibly collaborative. I mean, it sounds yeah. like he yeah. is constantly asking questions, constantly trying to, you know, go in and out of different, you know, position group meeting rooms. You know, why are we doing this? He's he's he's, he's obviously sort of a, you know, a. Uh, a uh, habitual, you know, a learner in a good way. Um, yeah. I think what's going to be interesting is uh, it seems like I picked this up on a couple of the beat writers and their and their accounts of what's going on in practice and stuff about about you know that the offensive line looks good, that Harry's sort of already making an impact, um, that uh, you know that there's that there's signs that that's going to be a strength area, a, a big strength area. And to me, what's fascinating about that is I'm not sure I'd like to know, like, how much of that is based on some, you know, observations or or accounts of them, you know, ones on ones. Like, how much are they going ones on ones in practice? Because there's no doubt that Notre Dame's strength on defense is their front seven. Right. So sure. yeah. if the offensive line is getting some good reviews and that's based on some ones on ones, you know, uh, um, scrimmage. The front line guys. Well, I think that says something because I think, you know, there aren't going to be too many, you know, front four, front fives or, or front sevens. They're going to be better than Notre Dame's this year. Um, and, you know, if the offensive line is even pushing them around a little bit, I think that's a that's a very bullish sign for the yeah, offense. Definitely a good sign. Sure. Well, it's going to be interesting. I, I, we're going to learn a lot after Ohio State, I think. And and like you say, I mean, hopefully it just doesn't turn into a two, three score game. I mean, I I think anything less than that, anything anything ten points and less is a huge plus for us in a big way. You're on the road, top top three team, and you're you know within ten points. That that just bodes well. There's nothing you can do wrong with that. Cool. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. You've been listening to Dome and Domer, an online conversation about Notre Dame sports from a fan's perspective. For Ed Jernanik, Mike Coffey, I'm Mike Brammer. Thanks for listening.